another episode of Not Your Average Operator with me, Paul Nolan McFadden. Wow, here we are. We're in the middle of it. We're halfway through January. Can you bloody believe it? We're pushing on. So here we are. We've got, we've got the the two boys sitting with me. How are you going there, Raf? Good. Good, brother. How's it going, man? And where are you now? I, I can see what looks like a cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a broom? <laughs> oh God, you funny bastard! Um, I'm I'm in a room in our in our MWR, uh, which is like a rec center for people overseas. So I am overseas. Is that, the, is that where the prisoners are allowed to go and work out? That's exactly. Yeah, I get an hour of activity here by myself. Yeah, good. Well, it's good to see you, man. You get you traveling all, all okay? Got there safely. Yeah, man. It, it, you know, it was a process, but I'm here. I had to leave my golden curtains of Dubai. Um, so I missed them. Yeah. I bet you do. There's no gold, uh, gold plated walls there. How about Dude, you, then, Mike? How are you going, mate? I'm good. I'm just, I'm just taking Raffin right now. Just, I just picture him showing up there and these people that have been there for a while are just like, Oh, man, it sucks here. It's just, it's, you know, it's rough and this, that, whatever. And he's like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. This is in Dubai. You know, <laughs> it's just, people want to just punch him right in the face. <laughs> but, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, yeah. You have a very punchable face. Let's just, let's say it. But uh, no, you have a strong chin. yeah, no, I'm good, man. I actually, um, I have two fun things to report, uh, kind of going back to previous episodes. Uh, one is, uh, I don't know if I told you guys, but uh, Baxter, the horse that I was looking to uh, eventually ride and training with him for a bit, he's uh, just about being uh, finished broken in. So I'm going to attempt maybe next weekend to go out and uh, ride him for the first time in my whole life. So that's pretty cool. And then uh, I think, what was it, uh, two, two episodes ago, talked about medium-term goals. Well, it actually turned into a, a short-term goal, and I uh, passed my master training specialist test and got that qualification. So um, a lot faster and sooner than I thought, and I got to admit, boys, I'm pretty happy. That's really good, man. Good for you. So how many on the course? What's that? How many were on the course with you? Uh, what was there? There was, uh, there's only seven guys that were in the, uh, the final oral board that you have to do. It's about, uh, 30 minutes, 30, 45 minutes, depending on, uh, how long, how well you do. And, uh, yeah, it went really well, man. It kind of just popped up and I had to, I had to go to class early in the morning on top of my regular job, which I'm not asking for pity. It's just what it is. And that was just really long days, like 14, 15 hour days of, go, go, go. And then, uh, you know, recharge and hit it again the next day. So it, it was, uh, it's definitely worth it, man. It feels good to have it completed. Let me go with family friends there. Uh, Mike, you've been, uh, catching up with some of the guys heading out barbecues, that sort of stuff happening in your neck of the woods. No, man. No, it was 37 degrees at work the other day out in the water. And, uh, no, there's no barbecue going on. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> We've been having a few sort of nighttime barbecues and sitting around fires in uh, people's yards, which is uh, sort of what you do at this time of year here. It's been, it's been really nice. What are we? We've been like 15 to 20 Celsius. So I think that's like around 50, 56. Pretty yeah. good still for you guys, right? Yeah. No, that's good, man. I mean, I, th- I think today it was like, I don't know, it was like 57 out, whatever. But it was, it was kind of windy. But still, I'll take it any day of the week. Awesome stuff. All right, so uh, Q&A day, as you guys saw in the show notes, uh, we're just going to sit here and fire some uh, questions at each other and see what comes out. And I'm guessing that there might be a few laughs and there might, <laughs> there might be some, some stuff in here that's fairly deep and probably a whole lot of banter. So I'm, I'm going to kick off first, if that's all right there, lads. I've got a question for you. Have you guys ever set two friends up on a date and how did it go? So I, I have actually, when I was, um, well, not fully set up, but I was instrumental uh, in them actually not only dating, but eventually they got married, had a kid. So it's my buddy, John House. We were in high school. We worked as busboys at this restaurant and his would-be girlfriend and then wife, Melanie, walked into the restaurant and he immediately talked about how much he, how cute he, or he thought she was, but didn't really have the courage to go up to her. So I was like, dude, I'll take care of this. Hold on. So I went over to her table and said, uh, Hey, my, you know, just typical high school crap. Uh, I said, hey, my, uh, my buddy thinks you're good looking. I don't know what other ridiculous thing I said. And of course she started blushing. And then, uh, I think I gave her his number. Maybe she gave me hers. I, anyways, it doesn't matter. But, um, then of course I, I talked to him. I talked him up a little bit and then uh, they went on a date like a couple of weeks later. Um, and then they just dated for a couple of years and eventually got married and had a son. And of course, for the previous episodes, you'll know that John House ended up passing away in Iraq in 2005. He was in the back of a siege, 53, along with uh, 33 of the Marines uh, that crashed outside of Fallujah. So, but yeah, it, it's pretty surreal to think that, you know, I was there from the beginning. So this is this is a high school thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we were seven. We were seventeen or eighteen. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think the summer of our junior year. Yeah, girls are terrifying at that age, and you know, I'm pretty sure the reverse holds true as well. When you're going in for someone else, it's always somehow so much easier, right? Yeah. So there's a human being out there that came out of this. <laughs> yeah, James James Cash uh, House. Well, actually. Yeah, that James. And I think James is uh, 17 years old now. I mean, he's almost wow. out of high school. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Fallujah, what a freaking shithole. All right. How about yeah. you there, Mike? You ever uh, set a couple of people up on a date? Yeah, so my one buddy, uh, a little less than a year ago, I want to say, he was telling me about this guy, um, just not really handsome, just shitty comb over and uh he's like hey man i'm looking for something and i said well what do you do and he's like well i'm a pilot and i said i know exactly who you need and uh oh wait it's you two oh my bad <laughs> yeah uh the relationship's not that great it's kind of shitty there's lots of uh, uh lots of back and forth but you're both pilots so i mean how's that working out for you i mean we didn't need any we didn't need any help from you you, you just wake up in flight suits together what, what happened we get given, yeah, we wake up in flying seats and get given warm cups of coffee. Oh, that's fantastic. 
Uh, just for the listeners, this is pretty. It's pretty early where I am, and uh, my little wife came downstairs. I like I literally came down in my flying suit and was given hot coffee to sit down and record with these two idiots. And there was a bit of banter before we started about uh, unfairness of life. That's wonderful. Well, so real quick, my answer to this: back in uh, high school, I was out at a club, and uh, and I wasn't really a club person, but I was only like it was. 18 or 17 under 18 under club, whatever. And, uh, I went there, I was with my buddy and he liked this girl. He was being a complete turd and would not, uh, go up and talk to her. He was super scared. And I was like, just go talk to her, man. Just go up and say, Hey, what's up? You want to dance or do something? And he would not, he was like frozen in place. So I was like, look, I'll do it for you. I went up, said, Hey, my friend likes you, whatever, you know, just this whole thing. Long story short, did not work out. I ended up marrying her. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, yeah, it kind of went that way. So that's uh, that was shortly after high school. So I am not. You guys, you guys on the stage up. use the term cutting someone's grass. Do you guys use that? Uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, I'm can just you figure cool. out what that means though, Raf? Um, I think it means something different than when you're referring to. It's not, it's not like, yeah, you're not actually going around with a lawnmower, but to cut someone's grass <laughs> in Australia is the vernacular for doing what uh, Mike just did. Uh, I didn't mean to do that. I was 100% in it for my buddy, and I, I, can't, I couldn't help that she liked me. You know what I mean? Like, come on, man. Sound human? I'd, it's safe to say she didn't like you. Yeah, <laughs> that's all right. Mm, we're hypnol. Anyhow, uh, so for me, I, I had a I had a mate, and uh, he was he was one of my best mates on pilots course and officer training, and uh, next another ex army guy. We got along really well, Rich, and uh, my brother's now wife. Uh, her best friend was this lovely little girl, Kate, and uh, we're sitting at home, and they were drink, we're all drinking tea, and I was like, man, she's tiny. She drinks tea. She's very pretty. She's very. Uh, polite and all those sorts of things. I'm like, that's my mate, Rich. And I called him and he was on the other side of Melbourne, which is quite a sprawling city of about 5 million. And I was like, mate, I've got a per- the perfect woman for you. She's a tea drinker and she's really little because he's quite a compact unit. And he's like, I'll be there in 44 minutes. And like, it was like the, <laughs> the scene out of Pulp Fiction. Yeah, his car slid to a stop like 37 minutes later. And he came in and they met. It was actually at my mum's house. And uh, they're married and they've got three kids and second Jack Russell. So shout out to Rich and Kate. My younger brother claims this, of course, the pig of a man that he is. <laughs> everyone knows, everyone knows it was me. <laughs> he who has the platform tells, tells the story. That's exactly right. He's not here. <laughs> and uh, clearly I'm the much better brother than him. <laughs> Does he ever uh, send you hate mail whenever they get in a fight? Like, does he blame you for introducing her to him? No, they don't fight. They have the perfect relationship and everything is fine, Raph. We don't need to ask any more questions. <laughs> but no, she's a, she's a crossfitter. I'll just put it, I'll just put that out there. Oh, uh, all right. Tremendous. They usually tell you within the first five seconds anyway. So I was about to ask, what's her friend time? Cause I'll judge to see if she's really a crossfitter. <laughs> Mine's about 27 minutes. <laughs> All right. So which one of you two wants to jump in with a question? I'll, I'll go. I had a question actually from uh, 
my cousin. Uh, so he actually listens in and he's about, uh, he's about your guys age actually. But, um, his question was shout out to Charlie, by the way, that's my, that's my, my buddy. All right. Cousin uh, Charlie. Cousin Charlie. Uh, he said, uh, so how, have you found it difficult to communicate to family, friends, your spouse, whatever about certain experiences you've had while training or deployed and why, um, he kind of wrote a little, little thing. It's just said, just maybe it's mainly confidential or just to protect or keep them from worrying. I'll, I'll go. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah interesting. It. it's interesting with me. There was, there's obviously a lot of, we all know that there's times before deployments and while you're on them. And sometimes afterwards there's stuff that's, you know, restricted and you're not going to dive into the detail, but most of my, most of my mates in military, you know, I've got like, Air Force and Army mates. We've got, got a circle of rugby as well and uh, then family. But, but a lot of my really good mates, I was able to talk about a lot of this stuff with all the way through. And um, I think one of the benefits of being a bit higher maybe than um, RAF, the, I didn't really see a lot of stuff up close. It was horrendous. Now, I'm not, I'm, I, we were working in supporter guys, but it was on the radio or on the uh, – on the on the on the optics on the camera and uh you know i think i was able to debrief a lot of this stuff with mates like one of the one of the always those benefits of deploying as a a unit as a squadron or you i always found i had a couple of really good mates with me and i was able to get any of the stuff off my chest at the time and um you know i'd be the first to acknowledge that exposure to really hard stuff is not the same for air force as it is for what you two guys have, have gone through. But, um, no, I was blessed. I was blessed that I always had a couple of really good mates with me on my deployments and in the lead up and on the way back. And I was able to work it in a conversation where I, where I had to, and they all knew what I was doing. Mo most of those close mates. I think it's, I think it's different from when I was younger, like my first deployment time to currently. I think my attitude and approach has, has changed dramatically to it. When I first was leaving, I think it was more of, um, no, I didn't want to talk about it that much. Like, Hey, I'm going to do my job, you know, like leave me be. And it was kind of like for me to hone in and focus on what I had to do. And people were curious about it, you know, and I would be like, yeah, I'm going to Afghanistan or yeah, I'm going here. Um, but I didn't want to talk about it too much. And what I kind of saw over time with, we've taken a lot of casualties while I've been overseas. Um, in particular, there was a guy that grew up in my hometown. Uh, he was killed in uh, December of 2012 and people thought it was me. And I came back, I wasn't even, you know, I, I came back and checked my phone and I had over a hundred messages and I mean, all kinds of stuff being like, please don't tell me it's you and all this. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? And then I started asking around, digging around. And then I heard, um, I heard that, uh, you know, who got killed. And I was like, Oh my God. Um, and I was like, that's very selfish of me in a way that I didn't tell people where I was in a sense, at least my family. So now it's more like, yes, I'm going away. Um, I will tell certain people where I'm at, but I always tell them not to watch the news and just keep, go about your life and stay busy. 
But uh, I never want to worry them, but I need to be honest with them because I don't want a random knock at the door and not be prepared for it as much as it has. Because like I, I said before, I've seen my mother on the floor after being informed my brother was wounded, you know, and that's that's terrible enough. But I can't imagine if he would have said, like, your your son's been killed in action you know, with no heads up. Are you kidding me? Um so yeah, I'm gonna change my mind. Yeah, that actually just cues me, cued me, and I did, I did have a, a couple of serious conversations with my brother, who was um, an Army Reserve officer, infantry guy, and I definitely uh, did the same thing. I briefed him in on where I was going and what I was doing, so that he he would know exactly what was happening in case the same the same notifications sort of came. How about you, Raf? Yeah, as far as the family, so as far as my wife goes, being that she actually was a veteran, she's a veteran herself, she's actually deployed twice, and she was also in the Army. So it was kind of nice being married to someone who kind of understood that no news is good news. Um, I did share a couple things with her, but it was well after they passed about some of the skirmishes that I had. But by and large, I, I didn't really talk about it with, with family. Um, I just didn't think it was really, it, it didn't. I don't want them to worry one and two it's it just you know I don't want to bother them with whatever because uh, to me it seemed trivial at the time uh, things that occurred is just things that occurred it wasn't like I was going to change anything so um, but kind of like you Melon I had friends that I decompressed with so after you know significant events happened we most of the time we joked about them and just kind of that's how you you know you just kind of laugh it off um, but yeah I, I never really I don't know, man. I just kind of dealt with them as best as I could and decompressed them with my buddies. And like I said, just a handful of times I might've actually told my wife Aubrey about stuff. Um, but it was clearly well after they passed it, you know, it wasn't like immediately after. Um, but yeah, that, that's how I dealt with it. Just, I just never felt it was important to try to worry people with stuff that, you know, I had no control over. I think we're certainly maybe in a different generation than uh, the Vietnam guys and the Korean you hear these stories the guys just would never they would just hold on to it forever we like i would get we would get together on uh, the australian military days april 25 anzac day you'd have a, a beer with some of the old boys down at a, a pub you're all in uniform you've done your marches and stuff and these guys would tell you stuff and at the end of it they'd be like i've never told anyone in my family this you know these old boys i love that i think there's a i think there's a benefit in what we have now compared to that oh yeah a thousand percent yeah, letters versus uh, Skype and video of like, hey, man, I want to talk to you across the earth. I had a really bad day over here and you can just make a phone call now, you know? Yeah, you can go into the cupboard, push the brooms to the side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How about you, Raf? What's your, uh, well, you got a question for us, man? Yeah, um, just to change the topic up a little bit. If you could live anywhere, anywhere on earth, where would it be? Hmm. Live anywhere well. I do love Australia. I absolutely love Australia. But do you know the ability to travel? I reckon it'd be like the thing that I'd try and answer that question with because I'd, you know, this restriction we've had not being able to travel. Like we actually love our life here. We've got a wonderful, Raf knows about it, our little home here and our community and the kids. And uh, like this is the kids' place that they're going to remember as their childhood home for the rest of their lives. And we it really works for us here. But if I could be, 
coming to see you two idiots and uh, getting back to see my brothers and my mum. You know, there's like a, a happy mix. I reckon of being able to have a great base to work and have your routine, but then still being able to get out and see the people you love. But yeah, no, I love Melbourne. I freaking love Melbourne and, and uh, Adelaide and Australia. Yeah. I'm kind of the same way, man. I, uh, <clears throat> no biased against Australia or anywhere else. I've been to, like I said, over 30 countries and they're all very cool and awesome, but I mean, there's not, there's, there's no place like home, man. And I, I see myself just somewhere like, uh, I don't know if you've watched the Yellowstone on Netflix, but like, this is well before that came out, but I would just love a log cabin on a piece of property up in like Montana or even like Spokane where it's just, you can have your peace and your space and it's just wide open. And I mean, just there's so much noise in my career all the time. It's so loud, you know, in a sense. And it's just, man, so sometimes when you just get away and you have that, that peace and quiet and clarity and you just kind of, you know, do what Raf does, man. He's a young old man that walks around and he calls it property. He doesn't call it land. He doesn't call it his yard. He calls it property, like like a 65-year-old man. But, you know, it's it's awesome, man. I mean, maybe- would, you, would you, if you could then, would you live out of a city? Would you be in a sort of a remote, would it be a house in the middle of a 50 acres or? I don't need to be in a city. Um, I hate cities actually. I'm not a big fan to like live there. I can visit, but I can't live there. Um, I'd say like, kind of like, again, like Raf. Raf's like 25, 30 minute drive to like the store, you know, to civilization where you can go to the, a pub or restaurants or like whatever, but he's just out enough where, you know, when he gets out of his car, there, there's no noise, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's beautiful. Uh, so how far that, is it, Raf? how far is it to the nearest house for you? Is it like, is it in the sort of hundreds of meters? Um, yeah, it's probably 500 meters, five, 500 meters at least, I think. Yeah. So five football pitches. Yeah. But there's enough, but there's enough trees. I mean, you can kind of make out the next house, you know, cause their property abuts ours, but, um, lush trees, lush trees, lush trees. Okay. Actually, before I, I give you my answer, one, Mike, you're not invited to Spokane, so just cross that out of your your list there. Uh, go build somewhere else. Familiar though, Mike, where are you now? Does it? Yeah, I mean, oh, hey, Aubrey, Aubrey, hey, another coffee, please. Thank you. Oh, sorry, sore and running in the background. Uh, uh, tongs, little flipper no. feet. Yeah, flipper feet's taking a nap. A little buck feet, uh, Bucky, buck teeth. Yeah, Bucky. So, uh, I would honestly, I think I would if I could you know, family notwithstanding and, and that sort of thing. I would love to live at somewhere in Central America in a, a nice little coastal town, uh, beach town where I could just wake up, hear the ocean crash, grab my board, paddle out with my son and my wife, surf, you know, eat some fresh fish tacos, man. Just, mm. you know, away from like a bustling city. And I just, I, I just, I romanticize about something like that. I mean, I, I've talked to Aubrey about potentially buying maybe a small acreage down in Panama or Guatemala or somewhere in the seaside town and maybe growing some coffee beans and just surfing, surfing the day off. Yeah. Maybe I can come down and liberate you after there's another coup or something. It'd be great. Yeah. Just remember most of those coups are started by our government. So <laughs> I, I, hope, I hope you help stop what you start. Yeah. It's probably not wrong. <laughs> oh, I know I'm not wrong. <laughs> For all you patriots out there, before you get offended, do some research. Before you send me an email.
<laughs> That's tight, man. Yeah. Um, okay. I just want to say, I, 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 we would definitely be in a city. Chesa and I, we love like the being able to go out the front door and get into the chaos and find good coffee shops. And we love all that as well, you know. Hit an art gallery on a weekend, go listen to some live music. Yeah. Uh, we, we like getting out, but we'd love to come home and have a bit of bustle and energy around us. That's great. Um, I have another question I thought was pretty good. Uh, this is more for you two. All right. So I was asked <clears throat> by another member of my family, shout out to Adam. Um, how do you prepare yourself for retirement or exiting the military uh, altogether? And how do you maintain the camaraderie, brotherhood, and sense of purpose? That's a good question. So as far as the retirement piece goes, just because I recently retired a couple of years ago, um, I, I basically just made a plan kind of in my head. And then I talked about it with my wife and we started off with where we thought we wanted to live, which is why we bought where we did. Um, so like I said, first, we just kind of had a plan. We looked at our finances and then we just started making moves. Um, so that's kind of how we prepared. And I knew that I was going to continue to fly. So I started, a, and this is like two or three years out. I, I literally had a road, a roadmap. I'm talking like a notebook with notes and what I needed to get accomplished. I had a checklist and I started knocking those things out. And so by the time that I was honestly, man, the last year of my military career, I could not, man, I couldn't get out quick enough. Like I, cause I just, everything was lined up. I was ready to go. You know, I wasn't afraid. I know a lot of people are nervous and they're like, Oh, you know, what's going to happen after retirement? I, I couldn't, I was so ready. You know, I was ready for the next chapter in life. Um, so that's, that's the huge one. Don't, don't a lot of people wait. Well, I should say a lot of people, but I hear war stories about uh, people waiting like six months to start the out processing. Dude, if you've waited that long, you're already behind by three years and you, should, you know, start years out, start like, kind of like you, Mike, I know you're already plotting your exit and that's smart, man. It really is. That's the best advice I could give anybody. Yeah. Six months, man. I'm six years out uh, doing my planning because I know we talked about it before, but my career could end tomorrow, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I have no control over that, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, definitely taking the long range view. And I, like, I think that if you're planning for retirement, for me, I'm not necessary. When you hear those words, I don't think military, I'm thinking actual retirement. Like I think everyone should have some sort of a broad brush, big map on where, you, where you're going. And that whole thing that Raf just talked about, that piece around figuring out what you need, you know, working backwards from having achieved it, what did you need to do on all the steps leading up to it? And so I fully agree that whole planning everything out, out getting the courses done that you need to get done, getting your qualifi qualifications and stuff sorted out. When I transitioned out here, I was lucky enough to come to a place where I maybe a bit like Raf, where I knew a few people and was able to just generate connections with guys who are from a similar background again. But I have no fear about transitioning a second time leaving uh, here and going back to Australia or in, into another place in the world. Cause I just recognize that these things are chapters, you know, and you're going to get to the end of one chapter, you'll turn the page, you'll take certain skills and uh, attributes and characteristics with you and you'll move into the next chapter. And uh, you know, anyone who's got a fear around that, I'd just be like, put the fear aside, you're going to be fine. And the skills that have served you so, so far are going to work in the next uh, piece that you undertake as well. Yeah, I, I hear one thing all the time, me still being active duty, <clears throat> is older guys or some of my friends that have gotten out, they're always just like, dude, 
make sure constantly you take care of your administrative stuff. Like, okay, nobody likes doing admin. I get it. I get it. You, you hate it. And it's the, you know, you just look the other way and it will fix itself. No, if you take the time to learn how to do it, like you're talking about your awards, your pay, your retirement, your, you know, X, Y, and Z, all that stuff. But then also the biggest one that I always hear is your, your medical stuff is making sure that, Hey, yeah, I hurt my knee and it's in your med record. Nope. You got to have like all kind of extra documents in there about like witnesses, like reports and being like, yes, this is service related. You know, like if you literally, if you got injured 10 years ago and you're just getting out of the military and you're like, well, I got six months left, I'll square away my, my med record. You're, you're done, man. Because I will, I'll just sum it up like with this. Nobody cares about your career except for you. And, oh, yeah, we lost your entire file at the VA or in, during the transfer. Not my problem. Have a nice life. See you later. Reload. New person's coming in. They could care less. The train's already gone. I'd add on to that. Like, make sure that you sort out stuff like your insurances. Like, in Australia, we, we don't do pensions. Uh, they got rid of them in the military probably in the early, like, 91 or something before I joined. <clears throat> but um, making sure you're sorting out we got retirement funds, so like a superannuation thing. I think it's like your 401k, but then health insurance and life insurance. Like there's a fairly large life insurance in the Australian military. If anything was to happen, your family's pretty well squared away almost automatically and making sure that those things are sorted out before you leave because, you know, a gap in coverage is obviously a problem. There's just, as you're saying there, the admin of it, you just need to grip that stuff up and sort it out yourself, take it on, on your own shoulders, do your research and make sure that, that's one of the pieces you're putting into that roadmap. Yeah. And the last thing I'll, I'll say about it too, is just for you to learn this stuff. If, if guys, you know, guys, girls that are still in and you're listening and you plan on doing a career, then definitely take the time to learn about this. Even if it's not for you, because if you've got good people that work for you under you and you want to make sure that they're good to go and you're like, Hey man, we're brothers. Well, and they come to you and they're just like, Hey man, I'm thinking about getting out. You know, I have this injury, whatever. And it's just like, yeah, see you later you should be able to give them information, point them, point them in the right direction, give them some tips some tricks, be like, Hey man, look, this is what you need to do because I, I genuinely care about you and your family. I, you know, your kids call me uncle or, you know, like you're, you're tight. You should be able to do it for that reason as well. And make sure that the junior soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines all know about that process um, because they're going to fight you on it because it's not what they want to do, but just make time for it. Yeah, these topics should be things that we're e easily able to talk about over a coffee or over a, a cold drink with your mates. It's important stuff, right? Yeah. And then to answer that second half of what uh, Mike brought up about, you know, nurturing relationships, even after you leave, that's probably one of the most invaluable assets that you're going to carry with you after your military service. I mean, some of my closest friends are the people that I served with. Um, and And the way you maintain those relationships is, you know, you make an effort, especially your busiest times to drop a line, to make a phone call, be like, Hey man, I have five minutes of free time. I just wanted to say, what's up. I'm, I can't talk an hour, but I just want to say, I just want to check in on you. And uh, I try to do that. I mean, to the point where sometimes I'm so busy, I'll put down names on a list just so I check them off so that I, I do something to reach out to them so that, you know, just to continue, continually keep that relationship going because, you know, that's your state. That's your social safety net. You know, if God forbid, if a year from now I, I pass away, I know that Aubrey will be in great hands, not with you, Mike, but uh -huh. everybody else will be there 
to help her out, to help Soren out. Um, and that, that's just invaluable, man. Like, you know, real friends are, are really what, what help you kind of prosper and move forward and, and rise up to your, to your biggest potentials. So I, to, I always see my friends as my potential for success. I've always seen them that way. So I try to invest as much as I can in my relationships. That's an awesome point. And I, I just want to point out that, you know, I, I was well and truly out of the military when I met you two idiots. And uh, as long as you're making that effort to engage and you, you'll find people, I, I, I would say that one of the, the good uh, elements I've had is like joining a club, like finding a, a rugby club or a group riding motorbikes with at different different times, trying to engage so you do have a social circle around you that you're not the only guy on your own once you've separated from that tight uh, bond you have in the military units. But you're going to find people who've got the same core values, the same thought processes and principles and so on, as long as you keep engaging. I think that's really good, Raph. i got one for you guys. Do you think everyone has a capacity to be a leader? Hmm. Capacity. That's the key word. I would say the quick answer to that is yes, everyone has the ability, um, but is everyone going to put forth the effort to actually be an effective leader? Then I would say no. I mean, that's, there's so many variables, it's questionable, but I think leadership can absolutely be taught. Um, just like emotional, you know, emotional EQ or IQ can also be taught, but not every, you know, but there's different ranges of it. I mean, there's people that are just naturally gifted leaders that have a really high threshold for emotional IQ and just, we've seen them. I mean, Colonel Hines is one of them. I mean, he, hands down, he just makes it look easy. Um, and I'm sure he's just because of his upbringing, you know, he was kind of, but at the same time, there's people like Mike who are just terrible leaders, but I think he can learn, we can teach him to have that higher emotional IQ and he can eventually become better. <laughs> Me want to try better, be better. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks Rap. You suck. You're, you're, um, you're welcome. Yeah. Whatever. Um, sit in your closet. So, uh, I was always under the impression that everybody kind of is a leader. It's just, uh, what are you leading? Like you could either lead a, a charge up a hill or you could literally be a leader by doing nothing. It just depends how you look at it and like what you're doing. So I, I think uh, in a sense, I, I, we're talking military. Yes, it's a different, we're talking like guys like Colonel Hines and uh, people like that, that are real leaders. Um, but in civilian life and other things, man, I mean, you could look at a leader as, a hundred million different things. It doesn't mean I'm taking away that, Hey, you're, I'm not, who am I to be like, you are not a leader in a sense, but uh, I think there's so many different levels. It's just uh, we're, we are used to in the military, such high standards and expectations that we're constantly like, you need to be better. You have to do this. You have to do that. When in the civilian world, I think, again, I'm not out there, but it seems like it's drastically different as far as what the bar is set when it comes to leadership. So I don't know. That's kind of my take. I reckon there's um, the, the capacity is one thing, but there's like a, an amount of endeavor or effort that's needed. So I remember always the, the drum that they beat in a lot of my uh, background was seek out and accept responsibility and that that is the difference. So that, you know, even, you even see it inside families, you know, that you do need as a, you know, you have a family, you have children and so on. There's a leadership role there that, that people need to undertake. And, and clearly we see in, in a global community, not everyone does. You know, people fail, 
as parents, people abandon children and so on. And like, I think there is inside everyone, there's the opportunity to be a leader, but I think some people don't step into the space of being willing to take the effort and take the steps. And, you know, you see it in junior, we've all dealt with junior uh, enlisted or junior officers and so on. And you, you can just see that there's a natural tendency to, to make the effort and undertake uh, take those steps that you need to, to step in. And, it's, and sometimes it's not comfortable. And there are other people who sort of naturally put themselves in those positions. I 100% agree with you, Raf, that it can be taught and, and people can get better at it. But there, I think there are a certain group perhaps who are less willing. And it's the people I think who have a real focus on themselves, unfortunately, and they're not you know, looking at what they can be, servant leadership, looking after the people in the team around them or making the team, uh, you know, it's a big one. I, I think that there's a group of people who don't have the willingness to step forward, make the effort and take on the responsibility. And I think, uh, Mel, and I think you nailed it there. Uh, I think you were just referring, and I would refer to that as a servant's heart. I think to be a really, really, you know, uh, I'll call it emblematic leader, someone that we immediately know, like the minute you walk in the room, we're like, that's that's the guy or that's the, the, the gal, right? General Moose. Yeah, right. Exactly. So like, you know, General Muth walks into the room and everybody knows that's the guy, right? Like you have a room full of alpha males, but he walks in and his passion and his servant's heart and his, you know, his attitude about everything. It's it that immediately just kind of wins you over and you just, you, man, you'll, you'll charge the hill with that guy. Um, but anyways, I digress. Pretty rare. I mean, that level of charismatic leadership, we're not all going to have that, but I think all of us can step up in our own lives. You know, you can take on those responsibilities and square away aspects of your own life and that's going to start generating those skills. And you can, you know, once you've got yourself sort of, you know, you're not a negative or a burden, you now have the ability to add to people around you. You can help your own family out and that extra capacity you're generating the whole time. You can then be widening that net of who you're helping out like i think that everyone has that opportunity and as long as you take care of those um make those difficult decisions sometimes you're going to have that capacity to help out raf yeah i think the the key that's really critical to good leadership is to be critical of yourself so if you want to be an effective leader you really the person you have to be most critical about is yourself and i think that if you do that if you focus on that and, and what I mean by that is look at your weaknesses, look at your downfalls, look at your shortcomings. And if you, if you try to shore those up, I think you'll be a lot better service to, to the people that you're, you know, leading, so to speak. Um, and I think that'll be really transparent. It'll manifest in everything else, your decision making and, and that sort of thing. And always trying to put others, uh, um, welfare ahead of yours. Um, but that's, that's just something I've learned over the years. And it's not easy, man. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of work, emotional, physical, uh, intellectual. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's an ongoing thing. And I think that, that, but that's a key aspect though. You know, you can tell that some of the most effective leaders are probably very critical of themselves and they're always, you know, looking to see where they can improve and where they can shore up their weaknesses. hundred percent. You got anything to add there, Mike, finish that point off? No, I'm solid, man. Thank you. Yeah. Good drills. Who's got the next one? Uh, I got another one that was asked, uh, what were your perceptions of being in the military before enlisting and versus how they are now and how they really are? 
It's funny, we all, we all smiled then, right? Yeah. Before I was in it's the military, not- I was before I was 17. So I was applying when I was 16 and, you know, it's a pretty sort of idealized view of everything in the world, I think. I think I was like many teenage boys had seen sort of action films and had an idea of how it was going to be. <laughs> and I was thoroughly disabused of that notion about the third minute I got off the bus at the recruit training battalion in Australia. <laughs> and uh, the first time you have a grown man screaming in your face as you're in your civilian clothes trying to drag your bag up the hill to the barracks. I was like, what the hell have I done? <laughs> but yeah, I'd say like an idealized, uh, you know, hard to really know what it is anyone does. You know, I, I don't think a young person going into medicine really has any idea what a doctor's real life is like. And I'd, I'd say the same in nearly any profession, you know, and, the, and we sort of put a lot of pressure on our 15, 16, 17, 18 year old kids in our communities to pick out a career and people feel like they're a failure if they don't know exactly what they're going to do at that age. But I, I think you just, you get in there and you do your best and doors open and uh, things become clear and you reveal character and, develop these skills we've been talking about. I certainly had a much better idea when I was applying for the Air Force. I very, very clear about the military aspects, but then I still had zero idea about flying. You know, I'd never flown before. I strapped into uh, an Australian aircraft on one of my first mission, you know, not flown before. And so I had zero idea about that. And then that became clear. Um, So I think there's like a get in there and do genuinely do your best, prepare as much as you can and uh, get in there. And the reality of it will sort of, your, your dreams will evaporate <laughs> like mist in the morning sun. And then you're left with the reality and it's going to be better and worse than what you thought. And um, you know, you're going to work on your own weaknesses and, you know, trying to address so, so that those hard parts become as uh, tolerable as, as possible. And you're going to develop capacity to deal with them. And then, Looking at it now, like I totally, I love the Australian military. I believe in the mission 100% now and I've, it's, it's 10 years since I left. And um, in some small way, I feel like I'm still serving that mission over here. But, you know, I, I, I love the organization. I love the, uh, the role. I love the camaraderie. And I, I, like, I highly recommend it to young people considering where they're going to go and what they're going to do that is a great place to figure out who you are as a person and, and gain some excellent skills. And, um, but yeah, I'd say you like any young kid, just get in there and do your best. That doesn't really matter what, what it is you're doing. If you're doing your best, you're going to have doors open for you that are going to, you know, you're going to become more clear at 20 and then at 25 and 28 and 30. And by the time you're an old man at 32, it should, things should be clear for you. <laughs> no, that's great advice, man. <clears throat> uh, for, for me coming in, it was, uh, well, even from a young age, you know, I talked about my great uncle Bobby and other veterans, my older brother, um, seeing people in uniform, it, it, it just really held a really special spot for me. And I really looked up to them. Like you can just tell a person in uniform is just different that they just, they just talk different. They look different. They walk with their shoulders back, like just everything, body language, there's just something you could tell even as a small kid. And, um, when I first got in it, I was, uh, I was very excited, very happy. And same thing, man, when I got to, when I got to boot camp, it was just, what is this have to do with anything? And it was just like, man, come on, let's get to the good stuff. You know what I mean? And 
for, for me, wanted to be in soft and everything. It was just like, I don't need two hours to shine my shoes and, and iron my stuff. Like I'm, I'm good, man. This is, you know, whatever. And, uh, but then I got into the team and it was looking around at some of these guys I've read books about, about battles and the beginning of the, the GWAT and everything. And it was like a brand new guy looking up to the older guys. And it's just like, wow, dude, like I want to be like that guy. I can't believe I'm walking down the same hallway. It's just surreal. It's, oh, it was crazy. Now I fast forward, man. And somebody said it to me the other day. They're like, so how's it feel to be the old guy now? And I was just like, I, I always take a, a second to pause and I'm just like, holy shit. Like I, I'm that guy that I was looking at as a new guy, you know, and I'm commanding the culture. I'm making the difference. I'm making the tactical decisions now for the entire platoon or whatever. It's just, man, it's so humbling. And uh, I think if anything, just to sum it up, I feel things way more like, yeah, there's the regular military stuff you hear all the time about like the hurry up and wait and all the dumb stuff and re repetitiveness and like, yeah, of course there's that, but I, I go on a lot deeper level and I really feel like I'm more connected to the honor piece of it and not for myself, but like I've walked next to giants I've, I've walked next to people that have done such amazing things that you will never hear about. And it's just, I don't care how long I've been in. I walk down the hall and I'm just completely humbled and just take a step back and just say, wow, um, I am extremely blessed to, to be in this community, to be around these people, to be given the responsibility that I've been given. Um, and that's no shit, man. I mean, I really take a lot of pride in that. And just the fact that I've been in long as I have and not been hurt seriously or killed. I mean, God's on my side, man. And I'm just, yeah, I, 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 I don't take it for granted. Good for you, Mike. Great, great. Uh, yeah. My, my only uh, advice on that to anybody who asks is it's definitely the military is not Hollywood meaning it's not as dramatic, it's not as cool as people make it out to be because books and movies like to romanticize war. And, you know, we've been in enough, I guess, wars overseas to know that even when we win, we really don't win, right? Like everyone's like, oh, we won X, X war or whatever. Well, maybe we did, but we really didn't. You know, it's, there's still a lot of lives that are affected and fractured because of it. And then not to mention the places these, these uh, battles are being fought people that live there are also being affected. So I, I try not to glamorize any of that. I never really have. Um, but that, that's just, that's my own personal take on it. You know, like just, I just tell people to be very careful with what they see in the movies and what they read, because it's easy to start romanticizing something that completely destroys humanity. And it's, you know, and then and we've read stories, like I know Australia's has a really dark cloud over it right now with the SAS and what they did um, with the war crimes. And, and, and I'm not, look, they're probably great men. I, I, I served with some of them. You know, I, I, I literally taxied some of them on some of their missions. So I know that they were great blokes, but it's easy to slip into that dark side where uh, you're doing more harm than good. So. I definitely would say that that's got to do with that glamorizing or uh, idealizing and losing sight of the overall mission. 
You know, like what yeah. what what do these organisations exist for? And it's a thousand percent. You know, it's it's allowing a civilian economy and life to flourish. That's what we're aiming for. But it must be said, there's been a massive peace dividend. And if you look at the global fatality stuff, if anyone's interested out there, Stephen Pinker has got some amazing uh, research with Better Angels of Our Nature, I think is the name of the book, but just Google his name and graphs and you'll see like global fatality rates that just plummet and you keep zooming in and you look at like who knew the 20th century was like the most peaceful time to, to live the least chance of dying of a, like someone killing you even with World War One and World War Two, And then you go past World War Two, and there's another sort of downward exponential curve and it's the best era to ever have lived in. And this is largely from these uh, Western democracies having established peace and allowing the countries to flourish. So there is, there is something transcendent that happens and it can get lost. But, the, you know, it's not glamorous. It's, it's essential though, you know, and when it works, it works. All right, guys. Well, that might be, you know, we really appreciate you guys stopping by and uh, giving us your time and uh, a Q&A day. None of us know what the questions are that are going to get belt fed out. And hopefully there's been a few insights and a few laughs for all of you guys. And, uh, you know, let us know if you guys have questions you want us to, to ask each other, you can feel free to send it to any one of us and we'll keep them surprised from the other two idiots. So the, uh, the emails are uh, notyouraveragemike77, notyouraveragerafe, notyouraveragepaul at gmail.com. Please uh, drop a review or, uh, you know, give us a rating. We always appreciate the feedback. And until we get you next time, stay safe and stay focused. All the best. <laughs>